John's Gospel, chapter 4. I want to read just from verse 19. It's a pretty well-known story about the Lord Jesus Christ who had gone through um, Samaria. And he came to the well and he met that woman at the well. And of course he discoursed with her. And we come to verse 19. And it's the woman speaking. And she says to him, the woman said unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain, nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah comes, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee, am he. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and said to the man, Come and see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came up to him. In the meantime, his disciples prayed and said, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye not know not of. Therefore he said to the disciples, one to another, Hath any man brought him up? Jesus said to them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, and look on the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit into life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And here is that saying true. One soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labor. Other men labored and ye are entered into their labors. Many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him. For the saying of the woman which testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans were come to him, they sought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word, and said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Saviour of the world. And we pray the Lord has his blessing to the reading of his own and follow of truth to us today. When Paul was writing to the Corinthian believers, Long ago he said this, here's what he said. For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of the message priests to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ and Him crucified. The thing is we need to preach Christ. When we pray about what we should preach, I'm talking about pastors and those that that actually open God's word for the congregations, we need to 
seek the Lord when, but we need to preach Christ. And I think sometimes Christ is not preached enough in some of our churches. So that's what I endeavor to do over the next two weeks. I want to preach Christ. I want to seek to lift up His name. I want to talk about Christ the Messiah, Christ the Anointed One. And Peter's last words, when we remember what he said at the very last, was we need to go in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we need to remember that in Christ alone is where our hope for eternity lies. And in these uncertain and difficult days on the earth, people need hope. And hope can only be found in Christ the Savior. Paul the Apostle wrote, Christ in me, the hope of glory. So this afternoon, I want us to just increase our knowledge or, or remind ourselves afresh. I'm sure I'm not going to tell you anything this morning that you don't already know. But just to remind ourselves and increase our knowledge of Him, the altogether lovely one. And it will assist us in our worship of Him this afternoon. Taking our titles this afternoon from uh, the last verse that we read there, verse 42 in our reading, and it says, Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and we know that this is indeed Christ, the Savior of the world. I'm going to take a little of this water here. So the thing would be Christ the Savior. That's what I want to look at. Christ the Savior. This is the one whom having not seen, we love. This is the one whom we heard from or heard about the day or night that we came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. We heard his voice and we answered his call. And this afternoon we know that he is indeed Christ the Savior. For he has saved us and he has kept us, many of us for many years. And David wrote about this in the Bible in 2 Samuel 22 and 1. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my Savior. The God of my rock, in him will I trust. He is my shield and horn of my salvation, my high tower and my refuge, my Savior, for you save me from violence. In the Old Testament, the word Savior itself appears 12 times, referring to the Lord himself. In those times it's in the book of Isaiah, which of course means salvation of Yahweh, which foretells the coming Savior who will appear. And in the New Testament, including the Gospels, the word Savior appears 24 times. And it's in reference to the Savior who had appeared and who has appeared. The word Soter is Savior from the word Soso. The same as Deliverer. Savior. His name means Yahweh saves. So there's six things I want to share with you this, this afternoon of, of, of Christ, of Christ the Savior. The first one is the eternality of Christ the Savior. Before the hells and orders stood, and earth received your fame from everlasting by our God to endless years the same. I remember hearing that many, many years ago and thinking that just really encapsulates all that the Lord Jesus Christ himself is. 
before one sin was ever committed, before Adam fell. There was a Savior standing, ready in eternity, whose desire was with the sons of men. Long before the world's foundation was that God had a solution to the problem of sin. The Bible teaches us in 1 John 4 and 14 that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, and I love that. As prophets foretold it, Isaiah 19, 20, it says, For he, the Lord, shall send them a Savior, a great one, and he shall deliver them. Luke 2 and 11, the evangelist himself reported it. He says, For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. In Matthew 1, 21, the angel requested him, when he said, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He was in the beginning with God. All things were ordained by him. The word Jeremiah means to be ordained or to be made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And we read that in John 1, 13, again in Colossians 1, 16. So before the foundation of the world, before time began, he, that is Jesus, was ordained to be Savior of the world. And it just teaches us and tells us that he transcends time. The eternality of Christ the Savior. But then there's the universality of Christ the Savior. Because he is the Savior of all men. In the New Testament, John in 1 John 14 writes, We have seen, and we testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. He's the Savior in the Old Testament and he's the Savior in the New. Was there not salvation for the people in the Old Testament? The same as for us? Yes, there was. They were saved by faith, trusting in God's future provision, typified in the sacrificial lamb and the goats and the offerings, books, etc. You know what? The scripture tells us built an ark moved by fear for the saving of his householder, all he had received. Job interceded for his sons and daughters every morning that they might receive. Salvation was available for them too. And Abraham even interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah. And they too could have been saved had they responded. So Jesus said in Matthew 11, 21 that that was a possibility that they could have been saved. In Exodus, the fathers obeyed the command of God and struck the doorposts and the lintels with the blood and saw the firstborn of the household saved when the angel of death passed over. David, in the Old Testament, many, many times, cried out to God, his Savior, to the Lord, his Savior. And then our initial reading this afternoon, we read that the Samaritans, that mixed race of people, believed the word of Christ and declared him the Savior of the world. But blessing it is for us to know this afternoon that. Christ is the Savior, the Savior of all men. Not in a, in a generic way, but in a, a specific way. He is available for all. That, that excites me that this afternoon because I, I'm concerned about my family, those of my family that are not saved, and I'm sure you are too, and my, and my neighbors, and those, those that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, would, I just rejoice to know that Jesus is available. He is their Savior. He's there for them. To save them should they come to him. All in 1 Timothy 4 and 10. It says we trust in the living God. Who is the Savior of all men. 
special of those who believe. So we, when we think of our unsafe family, our unsafe friends, and our neighbours and our countrymen, and we should, even those across the globe today, we can rest in the knowledge of the universality of the offer of salvation and the assurance of salvation to all who will believe. But isn't it ironic, and I thought about this, it's ironic that Christ is the Saviour even to those who don't want to know Him. He's their Saviour. For it's only by Him that they can be saved. And only because He's willing to save them. He's their Saviour, but not their Lord. Until they repent and believe. And then He becomes a Saviour and a Lord. Now thirdly, there's a commonality of Christ the Saviour and I don't mean by that that he's common or uncouth or anything such. Hebrews 2 and 14 says, For as much then as the children of God are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part or shared in the same. He communed with them. He came to share with us, share in our social weaknesses. He could have come into our royal household. He could have come in as a prince into our royal household, but he didn't. He came into a working class household quite poor. When he began his ministry he had no home. For he said the foxes have holes in the ground and the birds of the earth have nests but the son of man hath not where to lay his head. He had no money because one day he said show me a penny. He didn't have one. He was servants. He called them disciples. Not servants. He had no beast with burden. He borrowed a donkey. He had no grave. He borrowed a tomb. He shared in our social weaknesses. But then he came sharing in our emotional weaknesses as well because he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And that day he stood at the grave of Lazarus, his friend. He wept. And seeing the multitudes who were like sheep having no shepherd, the scripture says he was moved with compassion for them. So he shares in our emotional weaknesses. He also came sharing in our physical weaknesses because he chose to undergo pain, suffering, even unto death. John 2 and 25 said he need not do any to testify of man for he knew what was in man for he came as a man. Tempted in all points even as we yet without sin. A man who could be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, a man who would who would one day become our great high priest in glory and would understand all the emotional things that we go through and all the physical things that we have to suffer. Even the social side of things where some people struggle. So we see that he's walked in our shoes. We see the commonality of the Saviour. But then there's the individuality of Christ the Savior. Because to know that Jesus knows all about our troubles, for he had them through his comforting. But to believe in his son to teach in Christendom that he was just exactly like us. That's concerning. For if Christ was just a prophet or a priest or some kind of good man, even a leader, who is set as an example to follow, or who is just like a famous rabbi like Halel or Shammai or Yehuda, 
the nasty, who, who laid down the oral laws for people to, to follow. To believe this would bring us no consolation whatsoever. We have no assurance that he was just like a famous philosopher, such as Socrates or Plato or Aristotle or some of those big names who were simply men. But to know that Jesus was a sinless Savior, the Son of God, came to deliver us from our sins, means that we can have confidence in Him, which brings us peace, brings us assurance, and brings us joy. But how can we be sure of this? We need to know where we find this, and the Bible does teach us about His uniqueness, the uniqueness of His maker. Totally holy, harmless, undefined, and separate from sinners. Yes, He was like us, He identified with us, but he was unique, not like us. For we bear <clears throat> the same characteristics. We're all sinful. But Paul says that he, our Lord Jesus, knew no sin. To Corinthians 5.21. And Peter says he did no sin. And John says in him is no sin. So he's unique. The uniqueness of his maker. Absolutely sinless son of God. But then there's the uniqueness of his message, because the scripture says that never man spake or this man. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. He could say to the people, You've heard it said, and he's speaking of oral laws that were about at that time. He says, You've heard it said, but I, I say unto you. He's able to say them the yoke to them the yoke that your honor is heavy. In other words, you're under the law. Take my yoke upon you. It's grace. Learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. For in it you shall find rest in your souls. And the people knew there was no rest under the law. But then there's the uniqueness of his mission. For there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin and sin. He only could unlock the gift of heaven and medicine. The angel instructed, you shall call his name Jesus, the Savior, for he shall save his people from their sins. Such was his mission, to come and to save his people from their sins. And it's done through the message. We read in the word of God, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name given among men under heaven, whereby we must be saved. John S. Steinberg, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he wrote a wonderful systematic theology, and he called it, the title of his theology was No, no One Like Him. He's unique in all of those aspects. So there is indeed the individuality of Christ to save Paul wrote from God's purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. No one else could abolish death. No one else could conquer death. No one else could give life and immortality but the Saviour Jesus Christ. His mission was unique and his mission has been fulfilled. For he has abolished death and he has given life. And many of us here this afternoon are recipients of that life, immortality, eternal life, through him. 
And there's a personality of Christ to see. I don't really mean his traits or his mannerisms, I mean his character, his persona. He is what we would call the God-man. He is the one who is able to take the hand of man, the one that Job was looking for back in the Old Testament, when he cried over that there would be a man that could bring him to God, an arbitrator, one who could be a go-between, one who could stand in the gap. And the Lord Jesus Christ, being very God and being man, was able to take the hand of God because he was God. And able to take the hand of man because he was man. And he was able to reconcile the two together. He was the one who, who died the just one, the scripture says, for the unjust. That he might bring us to God. He was able to reconcile us to God. He's the one who has life. Who understood the very real meaning of life. He came to bring us life. Life more abundant and free. I remember many, many years ago when I got saved, I got saved on a sunny night. And on the Monday morning, I went into work and I was standing on a platform over a, a huge job ready to do what I had to do. And into my mind came the thought, what are you going to do on the weekend? What about next Saturday, next Friday, whatever weekend? Everybody else will be out in the club and enjoying themselves. And you'll be in the house reading your Bible. What are you going to do? And I have not heard the word of God in this sense for such a long time. I hadn't been in church for five years before that night. I got saved. And flooding into my mind from nowhere came this verse that Jesus says, I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundant life. And on that promise, on that word, I said, Lord, you give me life, give me more abundant life, I'll continue on. If you don't, I don't know where I'll be. And that was 30 years ago. He is the one who knows about life. He is the one who, who gives life. And not just life, but eternal life. He's the one who has love. He understood real love. And he came to show us the love of God in himself. Sacrificial love. Agape. The scripture says, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And it doesn't just mean to the end of that time. It means unto the end. Explicitly and continually and forever. Completely. He's the one who is sinless, yet he understands the seriousness of sin. Scripture tells us that he hath made him, that is God, hath made him sin for us. Who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He understands what sin has done in this world. He understands the cost of sin, the payment for sin. For he undertook the wrath of God on behalf of our sins. Here's the man. I personally believe that he bore every sin of every believer that would ever come to him. Old Testament, New Testament, and beyond. And that three hours of darkness on the cross. So he knows about sin. He knows the damage that sin has done in this world and it grieved him. But he knows what 
the wrath of God is like against that sin. He came to save us from our sin. He should be as a Savior. Habakkuk 3 and 18, the scripture says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will, will joy in the God of my salvation. Isaiah wrote of him in Isaiah 43 and 3, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. Paul wrote something that should really mean something to us this week. Don't know if you watched the election results. I think most people would have watched the election results. And you have seen where the election results have gone. And I just reminded myself afresh that my citizenship's not here. My citizenship's in heaven. And the one seat, the only important seat, is filled by the Lord God Himself. Paul wrote, Our conversation, our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3 and 20. You know something I believe personally? That that coming will be soon. When we look around us in the world today and we see the chaos and the confusion, when we see wars that are, we wonder why. We see this world ready for a man to rise up, looking for a leader to take over. Someone to sort out the inflation. Someone to sort out the chaos. They'll get them. But not until after we leave. But Jesus is coming back. To take us out of this world. From whence also we look for the Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking for the Savior this morning. I know. He also wrote that after the church is taken home to glory, and all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion a deliverer, a saviour, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Romans 12, 26, where God will have his witness on this earth again. Through Israel. For God is never without a witness. And when we go, there will be a new witness. Our highest Israel and all Israel, Paul says, shall be delivered, shall be saved. Romans 10 13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Why? Because he is Christ the Savior. Finally, the reality of Christ the Savior and the reality is that he is God our Savior. I was in America for a number of years and we, we would speak to Hispanic people and one of them, through conversation, said to me, so you're not telling me that Jesus is God. They didn't know that Jesus is God the Son. They thought he was just Jesus, the Son of God. They didn't put the title in reverse, God the Son. But he is God, our Savior. And Paul wrote in the Scripture that we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world, looking for the blessed hope, and the glorious appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'm sure you're familiar with some of these guys going to be to Bible College and you've heard of Sharp's rule in Greek. And he just came up with the, the, the theory that when it says the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, it's the one person. Sometimes some of our translations make it look as if it's two. God and 
but it's the one person I've been to God and Savior. One person, Jesus Christ. David wrote of that Savior when he says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them and just saves them. And when he talked about the angel of the Lord, it's a capital A. And we know that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament. Indeed, it was Jesus, Christ our Savior. So that's the reality of Christ our Savior. And I think that it, it helps us to remind us about these things about the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom we know and love, the one who, who saved us, the one who has put his Holy Spirit within us, that we might be able to worship him in a way that he deserves. For to worship the Lord Jesus Christ requires knowledge. And we love to sing choruses and we love to sing some of the newer hymns and some of them are good and some of them are not so good. But I mean, there are places this, this day and they sing and they sing and they sing and it's 40 minutes of singing and it's 10 minutes of a word and a thought and it's usually done with a microphone walking on down. And the people can't worship. And they do not know, didn't Jesus say, we know who we worship? Well, we know who we worship. And we need to remind ourselves over time that of who the Lord Jesus Christ really is and what he means to us and what he has done for us. Thank the Lord that we belong to, uh, to let's say, a denomination where we remember the Lord Jesus Christ every Lord's Day morning. We cannot get away from the cross. We can't get away from what was done for us at Calvary when the Lord Jesus Christ, who saved us, laid down his life, paid a price for our sins on the cross that we indeed might be saved today. So we've, we've looked at the eternality of Christ the Savior before time began, he was ordained as Savior. The universal way of Christ the Savior is the Savior of all men without exception. The commonality of Christ the Savior, how he became one among us, the individuality of Christ the Savior, he stands alone, no Savior besides him. The personality of Christ the Savior, he is God of the very God. The reality of Christ the Savior, he is our Savior, my Savior, your Savior this afternoon of your Savior. He saved us and he is saving us every day. And one day he will come again and he will ultimately save us. Take us to the Father's house in glory, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that Savior is coming soon to deliver us from this sin cursed world as he has promised. And I ask the question as he will to you this morning. As he the first of 10,000 to your soul. You know, we sing these hymns very easily sometimes, and I always pray that they can be prayers and proclamations to the greatest goodness of God. But as he the first of 10,000 to your soul, as he the one whom having not seen you love, with joy expressing. Can you say with Jesus, the mother of Mary, earthly mother of Mary, and she found out she was carrying the Christ child. She says, I rejoice in God, my Savior. And then I relate the Thessalonians. Waiting for God's Son from heaven, 
whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. He will save us from the hour of trial, writes in Revelation, that will come upon the whole earth. Are we, are we waiting for the Savior to deliver us? So questions we need to ask ourselves. Do we really know him? And to know his life eternal. What can we say as we finish one thing? Hallelujah. What a Savior. And I trust that the few thoughts that we've had, and I know we've skipped through them, but the few thoughts that we've had today will sustain us and encourage us during the coming week for his mercy. As we meditate, and we should meditate. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, for the scriptures that we have read in our hands. We ask you, Father, that you'll use those scriptures to encourage us today and to build us up in the knowledge of him who loved us and gave himself for us. And Father, as we gather around the table later this afternoon, that we might indeed focus our attention on him upon the cross. What he did for us at the place called Calvary, as our Savior and our sacrifice, that we might be drawn closer to him, closer to you through him. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.